the technician said he's the happiest sick baby they've ever seen. If we, uh, if we didn't get him tested, we wouldn't have even, wouldn't even known he was sick. So uh, it's, been, it's been pretty cool watching the progression of Serena, Isaac, and myself. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about that today. It's a huge honor to talk on Father's Day. Uh, it's my first Father's Day. Yeah. Round of applause for me. Yeah. Uh-huh. Pretty pumped about that. Um, it's also an honor to speak on Juneteenth weekend. Um, I really like that uh, we, we recognize that as a national holiday now. It's a uh, time to commemorate the Emancipation, Procl Emancipation Proclamation that happened. Um, and I think as a country and as, a, as people, you know, we have to remember where we've come from. And a lot of times, remember, we don't ever want to go back to something like that. And that's true with a lot of people's testimonies in their, in their life. You know, they tell their testimony and they think that their testimony is, I've got to tell you how bad it used to be and how good it is now. And just to remind everyone that that's not me anymore. And I think as a country, we also need to do that as well. Uh, we got a long ways to go, but uh, it's, it's good to speak on this weekend. Um, so this week, uh, today I'm going to talk about how I became a dad. I think we, I don't know if there's a title for it or not, but this is the story of how I became a dad. Um, I'm going to tell you all a good bit about uh, our testimony, is, if you will. Uh, me and Serena's walk through the past six months and, well, really more, nine months now, and kind of show you a little bit about what God has revealed to me, um, how God has changed me throughout this process, and what I feel that God needed me to get out of this. You know, I'm gonna, I, 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 I try my best not to think about what, you know, why things happen and what God's ultimate plans are because we never know you know there's multiple you know I like to look at it as a web you know and there's multiple lines that happened with uh, with this encounter and all of them ended up being good except when you were in the middle of it it didn't look good at all um, and so this is my interpretation of what I think's a little bit of what God uh, had intended for us you know a testimony is is something that you know, if it's not a testimony of the bad stuff you came out of to show how good you are now, then a testimony is to show what God did for you and show what God's done. And then you tell people about what God has done. And so that way God can release that exact same anointing into other people's lives. And so today I want to tell y'all a little bit about what's happened so that if you come to the same crossroads, you'll know what to do. You'll understand that God is in control even when it doesn't look like he is. So I know a lot of y'all know a lot of the details about uh, what happened, so bear with me because I'm going to tell a good bit of story. Um, Serena tested positive for COVID um, for the first time <laughs> uh, back in September of last year, and September 21st to be exact. Uh, she tested positive things on a Monday, and by Friday we were in the hospital. So it happened very quick, and at the time she was pregnant with Isaac. Uh, she, it was, it was extremely fast and extremely violent. Um, it's definitely, in the, the strand that she got was the Delta variant, and it was an extremely aggressive virus that attacked the lungs very fast. Um, I mean, we literally went from being perfectly fine on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday to Thursday, Friday, having to be on oxygen full time. Um, it's, it, was, it was a scary time for us. 
Um, and one of the worst parts about COVID when it happened was when people would be hospitalized, they would have to be by themselves. And so not only were they sick and were they on their last breath, you know, but they uh, also were isolated and they were lonely and they, you know, depression would creep up when you're all by yourself literally all day. Um, and so the first miracle that God did for us was that for the first about a week and a half, she was put into an isolation room at Willis Knight in Bossier. Her uh, doctor, Dr. Williams, Dr. Amanda Williams, she's from here from, here from Minden, she's an amazing doctor. Um, she was able to open up the isolation room for us and allowed me to stay with her. So that's, that, that's unheard of in the COVID world. I was able to stay with my infected wife and they didn't make me leave. Um, and it was an amazing time for us to, you know, prepare for what was to come because, you know, when you have nothing else to do in a room and you're literally looking at your pregnant wife who is on monitors, you pray, right? You start praying. You start, God, please help us. God, I need you. I don't know what I'm going to do without you. And so, and that's what we did for a, a long time. Um, and so, from there, she had to be transferred to, because it was getting worse, and so they didn't have the, the, the NICU to provide for if Isaac had been born premature at Willis Knight and Bozier. So they transferred to the Willis Knight in the ICU at Willis Knight and South, and they got her there, and from there she got, again, she got continuously worse. Um, the doctor came to me, and he said, listen, Joel, he goes, she is going to get worse than she is now, significantly worse, and we don't have the the tools to keep to, to maintain her the only thing that they could do at that time would be to put her on a ventilator and a ventilator was basically i mean it's i don't want to say it's a death sentence because people have come out of it but when you put a pregnant person on a ventilator it is one of the worst things that you can do for a pregnant woman and even just covid patients in general because what it does is it just pushes it forces air into the lungs and expands them itself. It's a machine that forces it out. Well, the problem is that there was nowhere for, the, for, for anything to go because what COVID did is it started building up fluid inside of her lungs and it started deteriorating her lungs. So there was nowhere for them to expand it to. So the only way for them to heal is to get the fluid out, let them rest and give them time. And the only way that they would rest is if you would stop breathing, which is what you don't want to happen. Um, but fortunately, there, there is something they call ECMO um, that basically takes, the, takes your blood out of your body, circulates your blood, puts oxygen in it, and puts it back in your body so your lungs do not have to breathe at all. Um, and it was originally um, done for babies that would come out. Back in the early 90s, they would do it for babies that would develop with, without uh, any lungs working at all, and they couldn't get a line to anything like that. It was initially for, for premature babies, but they found that it worked really good for COVID patients because it allowed the lungs to rest. Um, and so the doctor came to him and he goes, hey, listen, this is what we have to get her on an ECMO machine. Um, I need your permission to put her on ECMO and get her on a list as quick as we can. And I was like, hey, and he, he said, I just want you to know that this is the highest form of life support that there is. And uh, the beds are very hard to find. They're very hard to get. So as quick as I can, I want to start looking. I was like, all right, well, start looking. That was on a, that was on a Thursday morning, I believe. 
uh, that was about 8 o'clock he called me, and he called me back at about 10.30, and he said, listen, Joel, I've called every ECMO unit in, a, I think, 400-mile radius, San Antonio, Dallas, New Orleans, uh, Shreveport. He called every one of them, and not a single bed was available. There was not an ECMO bed available. He said, he said you need to start praying. That's what the doctor told me. He said, you need to start praying because we do not want her on a ventilator, and it's coming. And so then... Most of y'all, if y'all followed anything on Facebook, you know we started praying. And by that night at 8 o'clock, he got a call from Shreveport that a bed was opening up. Um, that doctor called it a miracle. He goes, it's a miracle that it came up so quick. It's a miracle that it's in Shreveport because my whole story could have been happening in Austin. I mean, it could have happened like that for me, which would have been, oh, my God, that would have been awful. Um, but, uh, yeah, miracle happened and the bed opened up. And so they immediately took her from Shreveport, uh, Willis Knight and South to LSU. And during this transition is when another miracle happened. Serena was in transition and they ran out of oxygen. The machine, they didn't refill the tanks. And so I'm walking with her, me and, me and dad, we waited outside the ICU for like two and a half hours sitting in the lobby waiting just so we could walk with her from the ICU floor to the ambulance. They're walking, everybody's, everything's fine. All of a sudden, everything starts beeping, and she's over there. She's like, <gasps> she can't breathe. She's like, oh, my God, the, the tank ran out. And so they are literally sprinting through the hospital, trying to get her into the ambulance to a new tank. Um, it's a miracle that she made that. Um, she didn't drop low enough to where Isaac wouldn't, wasn't getting oxygen because, she, again, she was still pregnant at this point. Um, that was a rough night for me. Um, you know, through this whole process, I'm sitting there praying, like, God, I just want you to heal her. Like, God, get her out. God, I, I, I don't, I don't want to do this. You know, I'm asking God, like, why am I here? Like, God, I, where are you at? Like, why are, are we doing this? What am I going to do? Like, God, I know what I've, I've seen you move. Like, move for me. And so I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a tough spot at this point. Um, and not to the point to where I wasn't trusting God. It was just that I wasn't trusting myself. You know, I, I didn't understand why I didn't have either enough faith to get us out of here. Or why, did, why, you know, is it my sins that are happening because of this? You know, I, I didn't understand it. Um, and I, I just, I was, in a, I was in a really weird spot with God. I wasn't ignoring him. I was still talking to him all the time. And I just, like I said, I was just, I was just confused. So we get to LSU, <clears throat> and the doctors and staff there, they, they're trying their best not to, not to cannulate her, which is putting the tube in her neck and starting her own ECMO. And just so you know what it is, there's a tube about this big around, and it's about this long. And it, go, it went in her neck here, and it went all the way down through her main artery, through her middle of her heart, and into her liver, all, all the way down to her liver. And so that process is extremely dangerous for obvious reasons. Um, and so they were doing their best to either stabilize her with a breath, with a, with a mask or high flow nasal, all the different things that they were trying to do to keep her from going on ECMO. Um, but the inevitable happened and she was about to be cannulated. Um, that was, I think she, I think she got cane on like a Tuesday, mon a Monday or a Tuesday. 
And so when she got cannulated, um, she came, you know, it, the procedure went fine. And I'm there with her and she, you know, for the, it's the weirdest thing. So what happens when, when, they, when, you, when this happens, her lungs completely collapsed on purpose. And all of this fluid started coming up. They would suck all of this fluid out of her lungs. I mean, we're, it, we're talking like, gal, like a gallon or two gallons of like blood and just fluid that had built up in her lungs. And she completely stopped breathing. It was the weirdest thing I had ever seen. I was so glad she was on um, the monitor so I know her heart was beating because she was completely still. Weirdest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I, I remember FaceTiming my mom like, you've got to see this. It's so weird, and it was it was such a strange such a strange thing. Yeah, she was really upset when I was in there. She told me not to video her and not to take very many pictures, which I really wish I would have because there's some really cool things that happened. I've got a couple of pictures I'm gonna show y'all today, um, but um, the the process that it happens though, it's the mental side of being on ECMO was probably the worst part of the entire process for Serena, and I, and I don't want to speak for her, but from watching her, I felt like that was one of the worst parts. Uh, because during the process, luckily, one of my prayers was that she wouldn't remember a lot of the things that had happened during this time. Because literally, she would try to breathe, but she would just suck in all of the fluid, and she couldn't breathe. So it felt like she was drowning all the time. And so for the first about day and a half, they had to completely intubate her because she kept trying to pull the cannula out, which is a very common thing in ECMO. And so it takes time for your body to now adapt to not having to breathe. Um, and it's, it's a very scary thing to watch. It's not, it's not fun. And it, it, it was a very, a very rough time. And actually, women actually get it a lot quicker than men do. Men normally stay on this thing for a lot longer than women. Um, but for some reason, women adapt much better. And also, Serena was pregnant during this entire time. And so, <clears throat> up until this point, I, I'm, I'm probably at one of my lowest points uh, during this entire process. And I'd seen miracles. I'd seen God move. Um, but I still just needed a boost. And I told my mom, I was like, listen, I'm upset. Like, you know, I feel like I'm hiding from church. I haven't been to church during this whole time. I said, but I'm going to come on this Wednesday. Um, and so I went to church that Wednesday, and if y'all were there that Wednesday, I, mean, I know some of y'all weren't, most of y'all weren't, obviously, it's a lot of people here, but um, I told the story to Alive, you know, I told him exactly what had happened up until that point, and I just told him, I was like, God, guys, I need some prayer, I need some help. I said, I know I've had a revelation multiple times in my life that, the, that my hands are actually the hands of Jesus. And I've had that revelation multiple times. But as long as I can put my hands on somebody, it's going to be okay because this is not my hands. These are the hands of the Father. And so I told a lot of that. And I was like, but I need, I need y'all to transfer the anointing and the love that y'all have for Serena into, my, in, into me. So when I go in there and I pray for her, everything's going to be okay. And everybody gathered up. The entire church came in there and they prayed for me. And it was a breaking point or a, a, hurt, a huge hurdle for me spiritually during this whole process, um, it, it transitioned the way that I thought. It transitioned what I, was trying, what I was going to expect. So I stopped expecting Serena to get out of the hospital the next day. 
And instead, I started expecting miracles to start happening around me. Because if I'm here, if I'm in this spot, if I'm in this pit, if I'm in this low of lows, I have to know that God's still here. I have to know that God is still a good God. I have to know that wherever my feet walk, whether I want to be there or not, God is with me. And he still has things to do on this earth, whether it's for Serena or somebody else. And so a huge shift happened in everything that happened, and everything. Um, we went in the next, uh, I, st I started thinking about, I started thinking about my daily bread, and that's what we're going to talk about a good bit today. We're going to talk about the daily, your daily bread, uh, the manna from heaven. And my mom started talking to me a little bit. She goes, you just got, we just got to keep praying for our daily bread. We got to keep praying for our daily bread. And I was like, you're right. I am every day. I hate manna. <laughs> I'm tired of it. Um, but I went back that afternoon, you know, the next morning, and I, and I laid hands on Serena, and I told her, everybody that prayed for me, and I called them out. And uh, I actually have a text, uh, I, think, I think it's on here, that, that, I, that I sent my mom. Maybe not. Yeah. It says, uh, she says, I get it. When anyone asks me, she's, she is getting better every day, daily bread. And I said, ooh, oh, you can't hardly read that at all. <clears throat> I said, now me on the other hand, big old tears are coming down as, we, as, she, as she walked and squatted and amazed everyone. I had just told her about Wednesday night, about 20 minutes prior, and prayed for her. I asked her for the anointing of each person to be passed on to her. I asked for the, the healing from Paul, the patience from Ginger, the kindness of Angel, the faith of Greg, the strength of Chris, the long-suffering of Michael, the compassion of Jody, the stability of Travis, the love of Alive, and I went on and on and on and talked about all the people that laid hands on me and the special anointing that each and every one of y'all have. And I said, that anointing now transfers into you. And she was extremely, she was, she was, she was trying her best. And so <clears throat> the next, uh, 20 minutes later, she gets up, and uh, she, had been on, she had been on ECMO about three days. No one has ever gotten out of the bed in Shreveport after three days of being on ECMO. So the, the physical therapist came in, the doctors came in, like, hey, do you want to try to move? She goes, yeah, I want to get up. And they're like, okay, let's do it. And so she gets up, and she begins to walk. And she walked all the way from her bed all the way to about this wall here, goes out into the hallway, and everybody's just like, oh, yeah, go Serena. I mean, it was, a, it was a true miracle that she was walking. And she gets to the edge. Now, now, granted, she's pregnant at this point. She gets in the hallway and starts squatting. And they're like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm squatting. I'm trying to get my legs working. And they're, I mean, they are, I've never seen doctors so excited to see someone's transformation happened. And it was 20 minutes after I laid hands on her. 20 minutes. And I love that I have these texts to show all that because I didn't remember that it was that close. Uh, actually, I, have a, I think I have a picture of her when she's walking back. You can see all of the doctors. That's how many people were. Those are all doctors, by the way. Not therapists. Not therapists. She said, I want to get up. And so all the doctors come in. We're talking like seven doctors. Yeah, because they, they knew she was just going to fall down. So, and she just, she gets, and she gets back in bed and she's just exhausted. I think she immediately falls asleep. 
and I'll never forget this until the day I die. One of the doctors there looks at me, and he goes, Joel, he goes, this is a true miracle from God. That is the only thing I've ever seen. He said, this is the most, this is the most, this is the, he said, this, this is a true miracle of God, and I've seen it with my own eyes. A doctor said that. Miracles started happening everywhere I looked. <clears throat> if you think about, I want to transition back to the daily bread. If you think about where we get our daily bread or where we get manna from, we have the story of the Israelites. The Israelites are delivered from Egypt. They have lived under slave rule for like 500 years. All of these crazy plagues happened. All of these crazy things happened. And then Pharaoh finally said, get out of here. I don't want y'all no more. They saw God move, do all these crazy things. I mean, how many plagues are there? Like 10 different things that happened that God showed up. I mean, locusts and river turning to blood. I mean, some crazy. They saw God do some crazy stuff on their behalf. They get out. They're going. They're leaving. And then they get to the river. The, the sea, and then the army's chasing them, and then Moses comes up there, sticks his staff in the water, and the sea parts. And they walk through, they get to the other side. As soon as the last one gets through, the big fire wall that was up that was keeping the army down, it fell down. They, rent, they started coming through, and then the sea collapsed and killed all of them. I mean, it was just a crazy thing to see God do. Well, they get there, and now they're in the wilderness, and they're walking, and they're like, oh man. Where is God now? <laughs> Where, well, maybe we should just go back. We don't have anything to eat. How are we going to drink? And so, all right, well, God told Moses, all right, well, go over to this rock. Take the same staff. Let everybody see it. Just hit this rock. Just hit it. And all of a sudden, water started pouring out of this rock. A different time, they're walking, and they're like, oh, we're so thirsty. And there's this, like, stagnant water, like this huge, like, pond that's just nasty. And he goes over and he sticks his staff in this pond and all of a sudden the water turns to sweet water, instantly clean, able to drink water. And then they're hungry and they're like, well, what are we going to eat? We can't eat all of our cattle because we won't be able to survive the, the journey. So, all right, well, here's what God's going to do. Tomorrow morning when we wake up, there's going to be bread on the ground in the afternoon. The quills are just going to come in and let you grab them. Let them let, they're going to let you catch them. They're like, no, it's not. God's not going to do that for us. Like, they just whined the whole time. And they had already seen all these miracles. And so the next morning, they woke up, and it literally said that manna from heaven fell on the ground. It was the dew that landed, and then this, this bread rose. And, and the word says that it tasted like a graham cracker with honey. So not only was it just bread, it was good bread. It tasted good. And then that afternoon... Quails flew in by the thousands, and these people would just go and pick them up, and they were able to pick them up and take them up and eat them. They did that same process for 40 years. And it's so funny. I was reading one time. The morning came. They got their bread, and then in the afternoon, someone said, well, isn't God going to be with us anymore? Where's, where's God at now? I remembered that story and then thought about myself. 
I had already seen multiple miracles up until this point. Even though it wasn't what I wanted it to be, God was still moving on my behalf. You see, the Israelites, they just wanted the promise, and they wanted it now. I want it now. I want to be there right now. Well, see, God knew that they weren't ready for the promised land because they had to go and they had to kill a bunch of people to get their land back. They had to go and they had to fight for it. It wasn't something like, oh, here's just everything on a silver platter like you think that you want it. You know, God said, you're going to have to work for this, but I'm going to give it to you, and you're not ready for the promised land yet. I have to get you completely reliant on me. I have to get you expecting me to do miracles. I need you to wake up every single morning and say, a miracle is going to happen today or else I'm going to die. Because if God didn't put manna and water and quail, they would all have died in the wilderness, every single one of them. And so they had to get to a place to where they needed him. But that took time. It takes a lot of time to rethink how your faith should work each day. or It takes a lot of time to retrain your brain to expect something when you've always had something else. When there are wars that happen, more specifically with wars in... Um, with third world countries, one of the biggest problems with these wars is the orphans that are left behind because all of the families have died and the kids are left. And so in the Korean War specifically, in South Korea after the war, they had an extreme crisis with orphans. And so a lot of uh, U.S. agencies would go in to help with this orphan crisis. So one specific agency in that, that, that went in one of the ladies told a story of how they, of how they helped these orphans uh, start sleeping. And so she wrote this story, and I, I found the story online. It's just it's 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 be, it's awesome story. And so they, these orphans would they would you know give these meals three three meals a day. They would feed them. They would give these kids all the food that they need. Um, but what they found is these kids kept being restless at night. They had anxiety. They wouldn't sleep. Excuse me. <coughs> They, would, they wouldn't sleep at all. Um, high anxiety, and they were just, you know, when you have high anxiety and you're not sleeping, it's hard to get better. Like, you just don't physically and mentally get better. And so they started talking to the kids in counseling, like, hey, well, what's, what's wrong? Why, why aren't you sleeping? Why have you, you know, been struggling? And the kids told them, like, we just don't know if we're going to eat tomorrow. They had been trained and starved for so long that even though they were getting three meals a day, they still couldn't sleep. And so what this particular orphanage did in this agency, they gave each kid a bread, a slice of bread, before they went to bed. They said, hey, this is, and the bread was not intended to be, ate, to be eaten. It was more of a security blanket to know that tomorrow you're going to eat. And what they found is almost instantly every single child began to sleep and they lost their anxiety. See, it takes time to rethink, to, retra to retrain the way that we think. Sometimes we need a security blanket. We need, you know, God to give us some kind of awakening and show you that, you know, I'm still here. I'm going to give you a little bit of excess. This is not for now. This is just to know that I'm still here and that I'm going to be here tomorrow. You know, today as Christians, we rarely need God. Today, in, in, in Western civilization, and the way that we live today, we rarely need God. And I'm not saying need him for salvation. I'm talking about need him in our daily lives. You know, 
I would, I, would, I would make a very strong bet that everybody in here has running water, that the majority of us in here, if not every single one, knows that they're going to eat tonight. Most of us probably have jobs where they are pretty stable jobs. Now, I know there are situations that change, but in general, Americans live a pretty good lifestyle in comparison to the Old Testament people. I mean, not even just the, not even just the people walking in the wilderness, just living a life of having to raise your own farm. And if that harvest doesn't work and there's a famine that happens, your family might not live. We don't have to deal with those things today. So we don't necessarily, we get in this culture of not needing God anymore. Instead, we just want God or we choose God when the difference is that he chose us and he wants us to need him. And that's not something that we talk, much, talk about much in the church. Like, like God chose us to need him. He wants us to want him all the time. He wants us to do miracles for him every single day. That's what he wants. That's what the word tells us. Even more works you're going to do. You see, in the Old Testament, you know, God, Jesus hadn't come yet. And so Jesus came. Now, if you sin, it's okay. God's going to forgive you. If you fall, it's okay. God's going to forgive you. Hey, by the way, I'm going to send the Spirit to give you strength to do even more than Jesus did. That's what our call is as Christians. About two years ago, I've told this story before. I think the last time I preached, I told this story. But I just want to give a lot of y'all a refresher on this because it's a crazy story. But it's true because I'm telling it. But about two and a half years ago, I was doing a lesson with Alive. Me and Serena were talking about the spiritual gifts uh, the manifest and the spiritual and all the different gifts of the Spirit. And so we're going through all the gifts, and I was coming up on um, uh, raising of the dead, casting out demons, some crazy stuff. And I told myself, I was like, man, like I, I felt guilty. I remember on a Tuesday I was praying. I was like, God, like I feel so guilty having to talk to the live about telling them they're supposed to be casting out demons and raising people from the dead because I've never done that. I was like, now I'm not asking you to send some dead guy on my front porch so I can raise him dead just to say that I've done it. I'm just saying give me an, give me an opportunity to give a little insight. The next day, I don't know if y'all remember the story, but this is crazy, but the next day I was coming home from church. It was the first Wednesday, so we didn't have a lie. So I had another week to get ready for that lesson. The next day, we're coming home from church. I'm by myself. I'm right next to Brookshire's, right across from Brookshire's, right there in front of uh, Mike's Liquor. On the, on the side of the road, there is this guy having a seizure in the side of the road. In the road, like, like legs are in the road, heads on the sidewalk. And he's like seizing out, and there's nobody around. That's the first miracle. There was no cars on Homer Road. I swerved over in the Regents Bank parking lot, threw the car in park, left the car running, the doors open. I run to this guy, and I pull him out of the road, and he is having a seizure in my arms. And by this time, some other people have showed up, and they're calling 911. I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm literally on my knees, on the road, holding this guy, and I can feel his heartbeat. Boom, boom. Like, he's about to die in my arms. I'm like, this is the craziest thing. And I'm like, oh, God. And I immediately have an out-of-body experience. And I saw myself praying the day before as God saw me. 
and he showed me the joke that I made to him. You know, God, God is, uh, we, are, we are an image of God. God's funny, just so y'all know. And he, he saw me, he said, no, I'm not asking for a guy on my front porch. At that point, I was about 500 feet from my front porch. And I was like, okay, God, I'm ready. And so I start praying. And I'm like, God, I say that you come down in the name of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever heard me pray. I'm not really like one of those loud, like charismatic, in the name of Jesus. That day I was. God, you got to come down right now. He's going to die. This man is about to die in my arms, and I don't want it. I mean, I was praying like that. And uh, I said, in Jesus' name, amen. And uh, as soon as I said amen, his eyes rolled too, and he opened his eyes, and he, everything was fine. Ten minutes, like, almost immediately, the, the ambulance shows up. He stands up, tells him his name, take him to the hospital, come to the hospital. He walked out of the hospital ten minutes later. Tell me that ain't God. Just crazy stuff. And God showed me at that point, like, this is the stuff I want to be doing. I want you to tell people about these kind of stories because this is what you have inside of you. As a Christian, as a man of God, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Everywhere you walk, I'm with you. And that's what he was trying to show me. I was like, oh, praise God. Thank you, Lord. I didn't know he was preparing me for Serena about to die, you know, about a year and a half later. But I remember... About a month and a half to two months go by, and I didn't really see many miracles at all in my life. Um, and I told my mom, I was like, Mom, like, I'm just so upset. Like, why, why does the church not see miracles like this? The Word tells us we're supposed to see them, and we're not seeing them at CCAM the way that I want to see them. Why is that? And she told me at that time, she goes, well, unfortunately, Joel, it's because there's a lot of times there's not a need. And even more, most people aren't willing. See, when the people get back from Africa, when mom, dad, Justin, the Generation House girls, Emily, Amy, when all those people get back, they are going to tell y'all of miracles they saw. They're going to say, we saw some crazy stuff happen. And you know why? Because there's a need. There's a need for him. There's no, other, there's no other way. God, I have no other options. They don't have modern medicine here. God, I've got to have you. I don't have health insurance. I've got to have you to save my life. And so people show up with faith, and then God starts moving. Uh, put up uh, John 6.35. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Rewind back to Serena Walken and Isaac still not being born at this time. I transitioned the way that I started thinking. Out of all the things that I just told you, out of the encounters that I had, out of knowing the word, out of what God is showing me, to start expecting miracles everywhere, every single day. And so from that point forward, I was intentional about what I did. I watched what I said. I wasn't negative. God is a good God, and I'm here to do God's work. About a week after that, they lost Isaac's heart rate. Um, and they told us we're going to have to have an emergency C-section. Uh, they're going to have to take him. Um, and he was going to be born 26 weeks. <laughs> and uh, he was born two pounds, one ounce. 
cool miracle that happened. Um, there was a there was a walk for Serena that was going to take place on that Wednesday. Was it a Wednesday? It was a Wednesday. It was a Tuesday because it, it, it was on it was on journey night. Yeah, so it was going to be on a Tuesday. It was a Tuesday. It was, it was a Tuesday. And so we start. We start. Uh, it was going to happen. I think at six thirty. As they would, they would walk and they would pray for Serena. This was planned weeks in advance. Isaac was born at six six thirty three, when the walk started at six thirty. Tell me that isn't crazy. God knew. God knows everything that we're going to go through, and He knows exactly what we need when we need it, as long as we have enough faith to receive it. And so I remember seeing my son being, I mean, two pounds, one ounce. I think I have a picture. I think I sent them a picture the first time I held him. Um, excuse the red eyes in the picture because I got a little emotional. But just so you know, that's my, can you see a good picture? Yeah. So you can see my hand went from about his, that's his butt underneath my hand. So from here to here, that was him. And I'm holding him like this. That's how fragile he was. And you, can't, you can hardly tell, but he's got oxygen, he's got IV, and he's got more wires than you can ever imagine. And, <laughs> and he was fine. You know, they told us that he was going to have to be intubated. He came out, he didn't have to be intubated. They told us that he would have brain, brain issues. He didn't have any, he didn't have any, any, any swelling. Um, I remember one, one miracle that happened. <clears throat> it, was, it, was my, it was one of my favorite. Um, I need to do a little research of what she told me it was, but the, uh, his, his doctor came into, because my, my days would go like this. I would show up at the NICU about 8, spend about an hour and a half with Isaac, and then go to Serena at 10 and leave there at like 7.30 to spend another, another hour with Isaac at the end because they were at two different hospitals at this time. I remember going to the hospital that morning and the doctor telling me, Hey, no, it was at night. I went that night. I went that night. She goes, hey, Joel, listen, we did a uh, echo on his heart, and one of the valves, I don't know if there's a doctor in the room, but there's a valve that was left open, and with that valve being opened, it was a really bad thing because the only way to close it is to, like, give him, like, some type of Tylenol or something, but the Tylenol makes them where they can't breathe. She was telling me all this. This is the worst-case scenario. She goes, I'm waiting on the report to come back now, and I've seen thousands of these, and he has it, so you need to start preparing for the worst. That's what she told me. And I remember sitting there, it was just me. I'm sitting there, and I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not going to make a big Facebook post. I'm not going to tell Serena. I'm not going to tell. I, I, told, I told Mom and Dad, I was like, hey, guys, listen, this is going on, but it's not a big deal. Like, I was already conditioned up to this point to expect my manna. Because at this point, we were having to believe God for something different every single day. Because unfortunately, even though I had my revelation, I had to walk it out. After Serena had Isaac, things didn't get better. They got worse. They got significantly worse. To the point where doctors were even more scared after, he, after Isaac was out of her than they were when he was in there. But I never faltered. And so 
like I said, every single day I would pray for my daily bread. I said, God, I need you to give me everything I need for today because the faith that I had for the day before would not suffice for the next day. Every single day I needed new faith. And so in this case, it was a faith that Isaac wouldn't have this death-defying hole in his heart. I went back the next morning, and she goes, Joel, I'm so sorry. I misread that report. I've never done this. I'm so sorry that I had to put you through that. I was like, it's okay. I wasn't worried. And she looked at me like, what is wrong with this kid? And I just remember like, all right, if I'm here, like, God, you're doing some crazy miracles today. I would start praying for the babies next to Isaac. Every baby that was in the, the spot next to Isaac, I would pray for him. I would ask the parents, hey, is it okay if I pray for a baby? Like, yeah, absolutely, because it's a bad spot in there. And so I'd lay hands on babies, and babies would go home. That bed went through like 10 babies in like 14 days. I'll never forget this lady came in from Monroe. They had to fly in their baby from Monroe because the LSU here has an office in Monroe as well, but this is the better NICU. And so when the babies come from Monroe to here, it's not good. And so the, I remember there was a mom and a, her, her mom there, and they were just sitting there. They were holding their little baby, and they were crying. I was like, hey, guys, don't worry. And they looked at me like, hey. I said, hey, I'm Joel, by the way. Just so you know, I'm not that weird. This is my son. It's all cool. I've been here for a while. Isaac spent almost 100 days in there. I was like, guys, it's cool. Your baby's going to be fine because he's in that bed. And they're like, oh, okay. And they wouldn't talk to me. I was like, no, 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 I promise. I've seen so many babies go home in this bed. They're like, oh, I don't think you know. Like, we're here from Monroe. And then it was just bad. I was like, guys, it's okay. God's got this because you're in that bed. I'm not kidding. I came, I came in the next day. That baby was gone. And the nurse told me, they told the nurse to tell me, thank you. I was like, I didn't do nothing. I just know the miracles are falling right now because I know where I'm walking, God's with me. I had to be conditioned, guys. I had to be, a, a change had to happen. Now, I'm not saying that this, I'm not trying to tell you that God put Serena in the hospital so that I could get this epiphany. I'm saying that things happen in life because we live on earth and not in heaven. And sometimes things happen, and God will take a bad situation and let it be your glory. Let it be your victory when, when the enemy wants it to be your defeat. Don't let what the enemy gives you as a defeat. Allow it to be God's victory. And see, through this, after this whole thing happened, I understood what Paul would say. He would say, when trials and tribulations come, be happy. Be glad because you get an opportunity. You get the chance. You get a, a, you get a need for God when you may not have had one. I could go into so many miracles. There was a young man, that young man named, there that, named Noe that we kind of adopted when we were there. He would not be alive today if God didn't intervene for him. We think Serena's story was bad. His was ten times worse. He got to see Serena walk. See, again, I tell you, it got worse before it got better. Serena got discharged from the ICU, and then she had to go back for another, like, 30 days. It was terrible. But while she was there, she was able to do her physical therapy in the NICU, which doesn't happen. But she was able to walk, and she would walk every day into this young man's room and tell him that you can do what I'm doing. The day Serena got discharged, he put his voice quarter in, and he told her, he says, because of you, I know I can get out of here. And he's, he's, he's doing just fine today.
So that's the story of how I became a dad. <laughs> and, yeah. He's eight months today. And he's the happiest baby you've ever seen. Um, Isaac Gray, everybody. So everybody stand to your feet.